online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, Italy. Master of Wine, Sarah Heller, has been on a mission to chart the Italian fine wine scene to produce a series of in-depth reports for Club O. She'll join us to share her insights on Barolo, Barbaresco, Chianti Classico, Brunello and Amaroni di Valpolicella. With its hundreds of indigenous grapes, its rich and varied terroir, its amazing gastronomy and, of course, its people, it's hard to know where to start with Italy. Master of Wine, Sarah Heller, knows where, a renowned expert on Italian wine. She's just produced a series of in-depth Italian fine wine reports for Club Onologique to appear across the month of September, focused on Piedmont's Barolo and Barbaresco, Tuscany's Chianti Classico and Brunello, and also Amaroni di Valpolicella. And I'm delighted to say she's here now to tease us with their content. Uh, Sarah, uh, welcome to The Drinking Hour. Thank you, David. Very excited to be here. Uh, very excited to have you there as well. So you've um, spent the summer tasting away. Uh, lucky you. First of all, tell us about this series of reports uh, you've put together for Club Onologique. Thank you. Well, so the, the objective really has been, um, I think, with Club Onologique to focus on regions that are broadly acknowledged as fine wine regions now, but that haven't maybe received the coverage that Bordeaux and Burgundy, for instance, have. Um, and I was very excited. They um, they started with Champagne, which I think is is very timely and, and sort of show, shows the, the ways in which um, our ideas of fine wine and what, what constitutes collectible wine have, have diversified. And um, and Italy was the, was the next one up. And I was enormously honored um, to have been chosen to cover it. It's been, Italy really is where my career in wine started. Um, and so I, um, I really relished the opportunity to, to go back and, and go to it really with this particular lens, with this idea of fine wine, which is really, is, is something to be honest, that's not entirely aligned with the way that wine has been enjoyed in Italy historically, but I I really enjoyed applying that lens to it and figuring out what exactly fine wine in Italy looks like if we don't just take an exogenous model and apply it apply it to the country. And you mentioned it's where your career began. Um, it, it's fair mm-hmm. to say Italy's your first love, really, as a wine nation, at least, isn't it? Yes, yes, very, very much so. Yeah, I mean, we're not we're not supposed to have favorites, but I'm my my first kind of extended experience being around wine was in Piemonte, um, in Turin, Turin, actually, Torino. So um, there's definitely, you know, I I think all of us, much as we may try to be objective in different settings, have emotional attachments to different places. And 
and Torino and the Nebbiolo grape and Barolo and Barbaresco in particular really sort of resonate with me. So I, li- I like to put that out there just so the other regions know where I'm coming from, but acknowledge that um, I, this summer in particular, spending quite a bit of time um, in Tuscany and then um, in Valpolicella has been, has sort of helped me um, really embrace those two regions more wholeheartedly as well. Not that I didn't obviously recognize um, the quality and the sort of the beauty of the wines, but it's really sort of made that more profound for me, I would say. Yes, it's kind of like Animal Farm, really, isn't it? Um, they're, they're all equal, but some are more equal than others. <laughs> yeah. Italy is the world's biggest producer of, of wine. It fluctuates a little between France and Spain. Obviously, they're uh, producing uh, almost as much as well. But uh, presumably, you had to draw the line somewhere. Yes, um, in fact. So the, the mandate um, from, from the top leadership at Clubo was definitely to to try to um, ensure that all of the wines that we were looking at had fi- were a fine wine quality or at least fine wine potential. Um, I think the thing, the thing outside of the classic fine wine regions is people have not necessarily, um, people have not necessarily had the kind of economic power, right. To dictate our wine is going to cost a certain level. And so I, we, I didn't want to base it, on price, it was more um, about finding. Uh, I think the rubric I've been using of late, and I think it's it's probably not only applicable to fine wine, but I think it's certainly a baseline for fine wine. Is it needs to be wine that was made by somebody who cared about it, right? Who who cared about what they were doing. Now, I I, I don't want to imply that there are wines where that's not the case, but this certainly is. I think the the baseline for any fine wine and going going on from there something that has the potential to be held for for I don't know say 5 to 10 years at least was sort of the the type of wine that we were looking for we definitely didn't want to we didn't want to dilute the message by having too many um wines that were really designed for everyday enjoyment, which unfortunately is the style of wine that Italy historically has done amazingly well. But um, yeah, there was really a kind of a shift of focus here where we wanted it to be on wines mm. for, for storage and collecting. You reference in your introduction to the series of reports that we seem to have been mm-hmm. talking for years now about Italy breaking mm-hmm. through and being rightly recognised mm-hmm. in fine wine terms. Your assessment mm-hmm. um, is that that has finally happened, is it? I would say over the course of COVID, it's not that people didn't know before that Italy produced fine wine. It was broadly acknowledged. And and say markets like the United States have been onto it for quite a bit longer than than the rest of the world. But it's more about what league it's considered to be in, right? And I think for the longest time, Barolo and Barbaresco, I think, sneaked in a little bit because people kind of could superficially see links with Burgundy. Um, and so it's like, oh, well, you know, I, yes, I'm, I'm mainly a collector of Burgundy and Bordeaux or what, whatever, Rhone, but, um, but I have a little bit I have a little bit of Burrell and Barbaresco, but I think it's it hasn't been until, say, the last five years that people have really been considering them possibly in the same league as those other B wines, um, the great wines of Italy. So that, that's that's been exciting for me to see. Obviously, um, painful from a from a wallet perspective, 
as as the prices have risen, which they which have significantly. But you know, I feel I feel pleased for the producers that they that they're doing that they're being recognised in this way. Yeah, those prices uh, really have. Um, shot up it, it, it's one of the more um, amusing aspects of um, the wine world that the people who write uh, about wine can't always actually afford the wines that they write about because of the uh, you know it's, yeah. it's not <laughs> it's not the most you don't go into <laughs> wine for the to, to, to make money and you certainly don't go into writing about wine um, to, to make money but it is obviously a, a, a wonderful certainly not a get rich quick scheme no it's no. not um so your sense is now that um the prices have um, have kind of uh, caught up, I suppose. Um, do you think that um, in fine wine terms, um, they uh, still represent value? I think there is still immense value to be found. There, there, we kind of, there are a handful of producers whose, um, whose prices have risen steeply over the past couple of years. I would argue we're, we're just catching up, right? It was sort of regression, regression to mean is the wrong term because... They, they don't have necessarily have the history of the prices having been that high, but it's more a recognition of quality that's gone unrecognized for years. I think the the one that leaps immediately to mind is Biondi Santi, which you know, as the inventors of the category, I think should have been right at the top of, of that ca- the category and um, for many years were, were sort of lagging um, in uh, the price point. Um, and now certainly the Reserva, um, is is very much has a big boy price, um, but is there still value? Undoubtedly, and I think that's because other than the top couple of names, and I'd say Barol and Barbaresco have probably gotten the lion's share of the name recognition in terms of there being quite a few producers. I think that people could name comfortably maybe thirty, right? Even for people who are not dedicated. Italian wine specialists, it would be much easier for people to name that many producers of, of collectible bottles in those regions versus, say, Chianti Classical, which is really on a on a steeper ascent at the moment, right? I think for many, many years, um, I write about this in my intro, it's been, been thought of as, as a place for great premium wines, great everyday wines, but hasn't, hasn't had the recognition as a, as a region for collectible wines, which I think is is in the process of being corrected. And how did you go about uh, actually assessing uh, these wines? Yeah, so I mean, generally speaking, we we tried to do the wine tastings blind. It was really down to what the consorti were able to to accommodate. So in Barolo and Barbaresco, they they were not they were not prepared to to do the blind tasting, which is fine. So we so I've acknowledged that in the intro, and I, I want to. I want to try and be as straightforward about about what the conditions were in each case. In the other regions, everything was tasted blind, um, but then there were other wines that were assessed on visits to the properties um, for producers who who were who were not um, who were not open to sending samples uh, to the consortium. So, in terms of how I what what sort of metrics I, I had in mind, how I was um, trying to assess, I, I guess I have been. Um, I've been drumming on for a couple of years um, in my role with the Vinidli International Academy, where I'm one of uh, two faculty members who are responsible for the course development. Um, I've really focused on um, on tasting, and I think I wrote a column in Club Inologique a number of years ago now about how Italian wine 
tends to suffer when it's subjected to exactly the same assessment as other wines. And I know there's there's a bit of people might see as you know exceptionalism, right? Every every country obviously thinks that they're special, but I do think that Italian wine, having developed its um, its sort of aesthetic sense, relatively separate from the international fine wine trade. The, the the styles of wine are are so are so oriented around different values that to judge them by international standards. For example, when when we're studying Italian wine in uh, the WSET or or even for the for the MW, the tannin levels almost always fall in medium plus or high, right? If for for WSET terminology in in the MWs, you're supposed to come up with slightly more descriptive terms. But and I think that. That's a challenge because the great varieties of Italy, there, there is actually a spectrum, right? All the way from Sagrantino, which is unbelievably tannic, to um, something like Corvina, which is you know, the, the main grape in, uh, in Valpolicella, which is really fairly low in tannin in an Italian context, maybe not in an international context. Um, so I did, I tried to, without being, without being over generous and completely banishing international standards from my from my mind i did try to take into account my greater familiarity with with um italian wine as a as a sort of style category i hope that answers your question yeah i mean it's very interesting uh, quite challenging to articulate actually uh, uh, as well i think although you, you did a, um, a, a, a an admirable job this is what you mean <laughs> when you talk about context being a very mm-hmm. crucial part of the tasting process you mentioned that in your introduction mm-hmm. yes yeah so there's there's both my context right acknowledging that i have a palate that effectively was raised on these more tannic more acidic less fruit-driven wines, right, if I want to sort of summarize it in a very blunt way, um, and wines where, where bitterness plays an important role, which I think historically um, in, in a French context or in, in the sort of Anglo-French continuum context, right, where, where wines are being assessed, bitterness has is, is largely been rejected as a flaw, whereas I think bitterness, certainly in contemporary Italian cuisine, is a critical part, right, that all of the coffee, all of the bitter vegetables, the amari, that you know, all, all of these um, products um, that really just treat bitterness as another element of balance. When your palate is calibrated to that, bitterness in wine just seems like a natural, a natural um, balance for for fruit, for um, for alcohol, um, and so and so. Yes, uh, that that. I think needed needed to be taken into account rather than um, you know just being being dismissed as a as a flaw. Yeah, bitterness is so much a part of the Italian palate across the board, mm-hmm. really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. Although I've, I've it's a subject that I've I've dug into increasingly again for the Italy International Academy, um, and it's really it's really fascinating to take to trace the excuse me the history of Italian cuisine um, starting in the Middle Ages, say, um, how how bitterness gradually came to be introduced. It wasn't, in the Middle Ages, it certainly actually was, it wasn't a major part of the cuisine, except that Italy was the only place um, at that point in time um, that regularly ate salad. 
Um, so the I think some of the some of the books that I've been reading argue that Italy is the 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 invention the home of the of the salad um, and people eating regularly eating wild greens and uh, wild herbs um, and I think that those um, that level of bitterness that you get in the in these wild vegetables and those herbal aromas um, really influences what people have selected in terms of grape varieties over the years right there are a huge number of herbal herbal aromas um, that we find in uh, in Italian native grapes that are quite different to the ones that we find um, in international grape varieties. Yeah, so true and and so delicious as well. I have mm, to say, yeah, you. yum. Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, something as well in your introduction about tasting in situ, tasting at uh, a winery. Uh, where you're mm-hmm. uh, assessing their wines. You describe that process mm-hmm. as holistic, but more open to bias. What do you mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, so I mean, holistic, it's it's the entire experience, right? I'm, I'm a visual artist by training, right? So for me, the uh, we're, it's quite funny coming from a master of wine context, right? Where we're really, we really try to strip everything else away. I remember studying deliberately, trying to make sure that anytime I was assessing wine, I was in an, like an all white environment um, with exactly the same glasses that I would have um, in the exam. So as to kind of remove anything that might change my perception of the wines. And post MW, trying to remember that wine is always experienced in a context, right? There's um, so much of the research Charles Spence has done, for instance, on the sounds that we hear, you know, the music that we hear while we're listening, the shape of the glasses. I mean, Riedel's done immense amounts of work on this also. But but I think beyond the physics of it, right, there's there's something psychological that takes place when we when we see round shapes, when we have a round, sh- uh, a round surface in contact with our mouths we're primed to experience something as rounder, right? So we're, we're I think if, if, and if I can get across anything in, in the process of writing these reports, it's that there is, ob- objectivity is, is very tenuous, um, really, in the assessment of wine. And so being in the place where the wine is made is incredibly atmospheric, right? You've seen the site where the wine is from. It gives you an idea of what you should be expecting. You speak to the person who made the wine. You have feelings about them, whether positive or negative, and that will invariably change the way that you feel about the wine. And I, I know this because uh, it, it, sorry, this is underlined for me because there are several wines in that were tasted in the report where I tasted it once in the blind tasting um, at the consortium and once at the winery. And so I can compare my notes directly. Uh, it's reassuring that often some of it or yeah, I'd say like the bulk of it is, is is the same, right? If the fruit was more red than purple, I generally picked that up on both occasions. So that's that's good to know. But certainly there are differences. And uh, and yeah, I, I think I, people are probably the biggest biggest bias of all, right? We 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 invariably see the wines differently once we know who's made them. There's no question. Um, and. So I think the the thing about it, though, that is useful is that you get a greater understanding from my side, my awareness of the stylistic kind of tendencies of Italian wine, but then also trying to provide the reader with an understanding of 
the place where the wine came from and the people behind it. Um, so as to quite kind of fill in a bit of the experience, obviously you can't completely recreate, but a bit of the experience I might've had, had especially in the cases where I visited um, with, uh, with the producer. Um, I tried to, I tried to inject as much of that into the notes as I could. It's really interesting that experiential element in our uh, qualitative assessment of a wine. Um, I, I was talking to mm. uh, mm. Francis Malman, um, obviously the uh, guest editor of the current uh, edition of um, Club O, in mm. which you uh, you appear mm. talking about uh, Cabernet Franc, and um, mm. he is really interesting on things tasting different uh, depending on where you're uh, tasting this food in this case but wine too because mm-hmm. he's obviously big into his wine mm-hmm. that sort of experiential thing uh the surroundings mm-hmm. how they're decorated the mm-hmm. atmosphere the people you're mm-hmm. with all of that stuff it's mm-hmm. fascinating isn't it absolutely and um and i think thank goodness right because otherwise we would just sit in in completely white rooms with with iso glasses and taste i mean that the, there's a i don't know there's sort of a hubris in in trying to trying to um, imagine that wine that wine is somehow experienced divorced from the context that it's in um, wine and food pairing is kind of just one element of it right the 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 lighting the com- the company the the um, the music what whatever else is happening certainly has an impact on our sensory apparatus and yes I mean that that for example the big project that I had that sort of has, has pushed me further down this path is, is the visual tasting notes that I do, um, where I try to try to openly embrace this idea that, that wine, each, each instance in which you taste the wine will be different. And so, and so each one is just representative of a single moment in which I tasted a wine. And I think critics do this as well, right? Where there's a, there's a, um, statement about when the wine is tasted, acknowledging, right, that it evolves Obviously, I tried. I tried to remove anything that um, would be too would be too prejudicial. Like, I didn't eat any food, for instance, while I was tasting any of the wines. I think that would have been that would have been taking it a step too far. But um, but certainly, yeah. in in a real life context, the food is going to have a huge influence on on the way that the wine is perceived. Yes. And if you're having something with a, uh, you know, uh, that, that's paired beautifully, then obviously that's going to enhance the wine equally. I suppose if you're having a, mm-hmm. uh, a chunk of garlic bread or something, then the wine's going <laughs> to be obliterated, isn't it? Exactly. Garlic was the first place my mind went as well. Yeah, which, of course, is a big is a big topic in, in Italian food because of the very different attitudes that people have to garlic um, uh, across the peninsula. Um I do find it hilarious in Piemonte that that um, you know the people where they're making the ragu and you know you're only allowed to smash a clove of garlic, put it in for a little while, and then remove it. But then on the other hand, you have banya cauda, which is like a paste made of garlic. So there's yeah, there there's certainly there's certainly a lot um, in in Italian food that can that will affect the the way that that wine that wine tastes. You also reference um, something that I must confess I, I'd never really thought about, uh, which is mm. an Italian aversion to the 100-point mm. scale. Indeed. Yeah, sensitive topic. But I, I, um, I, t- to be honest, I, I haven't looked in detail at what every single country or every single region 
feels about the hundred point scale. I'm sure there 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 are any number of places where people where people have have their issues with it. And and I mean I think the wine world in general we we have we have mixed feelings about about it and its utility. And then people have tried to you know utilize different scales, points out of twenty. In Italy there's there's Gambare Rosso, the the Trebicchieri, the three the three um cups, glasses. Um yeah, I mean to be honest, it's not it's not a tool that I have used extensively in in my writing up until now, partly because I think it implies universal standards and I just I know that I must be careful because there there, there are plenty of people for whom it's um sort of very integral to what they do and I, I don't wish to to dismiss that or, or diminish the work that they do but it I have spent so much of my time in this industry trying to um, encourage people to explore little pockets of of the wine world and to then subject it to something that by its very nature is um, objective and universal and and kind of imposing a sameness arguably was was kind of was a little bit uh challenging for me i'm not gonna lie um i I've, obviously it's something that i've used by judge competitions i've um you know I, I i understand the the value that that having some sort of objective quality standard brings but at the same time i would hate i would hate to think that people would be out there and certainly there are people who do this and i understand why saying you know i want a 95 and up wine only um and not not thinking at all about about the, the context behind that, the differences that are inherent in in the regions and the grapes and the people who've made the wine. So yeah, in the Italian context, definitely because it is such a fundamentally individualistic society, right? Where where well individual is probably an exaggeration. There's very there's very great loyalty to the place that you're from, but that place can be very, very granular, right? There's this concept in Italy of Campanilismo, which is loyalty to the the tower the church tower of your village that that nowhere where the church tower can't be seen or heard is part of your of your your uh, homeland and so i think it's it's especially it's especially challenging for a lot of italian producers to accept being compared in this way to wines that they feel don't have anything to do with with their own yeah it's a kind of potential kind of hornet's nest, but uh, you've um, mm. uh, kind of diplomatically, uh, kind of delicately uh, trodden um, around uh, the edge of it. But you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge, like you, a, a, a massive Italophile. But the number of times I, mm. I kind of roll my eyes and think only in Italy uh, would, would we be having this conversation or, you know, it's, uh, but it's it's just part of the, uh, the fiber of the place. And also to often, yeah, part of the magic of the place as well, isn't it? Really, I mean, Italy could yeah. only be Italy. Yeah, exactly. It's it's the thing that I mean. I yeah, I keep get getting drawn back to to it as a as a country. I mean, not not that I've ever not that I've ever strayed particularly far, but there there's something extremely compelling about the the absolute belief that people have in in what they're doing, and it just you want to you want to follow along and see what happens next. And yeah, also I, I had any number of discussions with with the lovely people from the consortium who were were shepherding me around the region just about the Italian character or the Tuscan character versus the Piemontese character or the or the 
the character of, of people from Verona versus, you know, it, it's um, people have these very deep identities, very, very tied to the places where they're from. And I think as somebody who I myself, I'm, you know, my parents, my dad is half Chinese and half German, but my mother is Korean American. We're all, we're all sort of dislocated people. And so there's something very compelling about being around people who are not this. They're very, very firmly rooted in, in the place where they're from and have absolute loyalty and confidence and, and yeah, a, a very, very clear sense of identity. I think that, that for me personally has, has been one of the things that's so, excuse me, magnetic about the country. Absolutely. Uh, touching on uh, the individual regions then that you uh, mm-hmm. feature in these reports and we'll be relatively mm-hmm. broad brush here because, of course, we want to inspire people to actually go and read the specific reports uh, rather than mm-hmm. uh, kind of um, do a spoiler. Uh, no one at Club O is going to thank <laughs> me for that. Uh, so um, in, in headline terms, <laughs> talk about what you mm-hmm. discovered, um, first of all, in Tuscany, because this is broken down into uh, mm. Brunello and Chianti Classico, isn't it? It's quite interesting. I think Brunello di Montalcino, from its very beginning, was a fine wine. And that sort of level of of confidence and I, I'd say quiet confidence. It's never been a region where there have been, I don't want to say never, the, the, the radical radical change has not been has not sort of been built into say, the DNA of the of the region. It's been one where I think there's been gradual change. Um, and I would say that my overall assessment was that there was not, there was not like a clear stylistic shift taking place, but that quality has been quietly improved behind the scenes um, in, a, in a pretty major way, but not in a way that people are sort of out there um, proselytizing about. So that, that um, I think was reassuring to see um, that that there is a confidence that they're that they've in broad strokes got it right and it's about sort of tightening the bolts and and tweaking things here and there just to ensure that quality is absolutely maximized i think a lot of that actually has to do with the the um the genetic material right with sangiovese and clone improvement and i think for for many many years there've been i guess this is getting a little bit geeky but there there've been a handful of clones that have really been the source for a lot of a lot of producers, and there's been a move away from you know, having that that I want to say um, monoculture, but um, yeah, re-embrace of things like massal selection to get genetic material that's really simpatico to the particular sites that people have. Um, and I'd say yeah, a bit a bit of a move towards site specificity, but not certainly to the extent that we see in a place like Barolo and Barbaresco that has embraced it massively. Anyway, we'll come to that later. But um, Chianti Classical, meanwhile, has really been working on um, spreading the message of the Gran Selezione, which which I think as a category was a little bit confusing in the beginning because it was based on longer aging time. The market didn't really know what... It, it felt like the wines just had to be kind of bigger and more concentrated and possibly have more new oak. And that is fundamentally opposed to what I think the region does so magnificently, which is these incredibly elegant, sensuous, lovely, light Sangiovese wines. And so watching watching a kind of renewed confidence in what the grape does inherently and seeing lighter and more 
more elegant Gran Selezione wines being produced and not feeling the need to have French oak used is really, um, it's really wonderful for me. I've, I've one of the things I, I bang on about with, um, with Italian wine assessment is that the pr- presence of French oak, where I think there is a more direct line um, in in a region like Bordeaux or, or or Burgundy, between the level of new French oak, obviously not not more is better forever, but but generally speaking, people reserve a greater amount of new new oak for for their better quality wines. In Italy, it's it's not a fundamental part of the recipe, right? I mean, it the traditional way that wine has been produced has been using larger more neutral, more neutral wood, right? Slavonian oak rather than French um, and vessels where there just isn't that much um, aromatic contribution or is much less aromatic contribution from the wood. And so to see more and more top Chianti Classico returning to that heritage, I would say has, has been, has been the big, the big delight i'd say of of this this process the great the move towards greater site specificity in Chianti classico has been interesting so the the release of these ugas or ugas as everybody's talking about i mean i think it's going to be it's going to be a little bit of time before people figure out exactly what each one stands for it's 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 um i think fantastic that certain areas like lamole for instance were carved out because there is higher altitude there and the wines from there i think have quite strong identity relative to to other other parts of the region but but i think there's still work to be done in figuring out exactly what the identity of some of them are and how to communicate that and get people on board with you know sort of representing themselves as part of a sub-region if that makes sense and just for those who might be scratching their heads thinking uh, what's an uga <laughs> uh, just explain a little bit more about- <laughs> apologies yes yeah, so the there has been this move in, in Italy towards greater site specificity, and it's something that I that I will be that I will be covering in significantly greater detail um, in in the material to come, both for the print magazine and for the reports. Everyone kind of looking to Barolo and Barbaresco, who were the were the first first Barbaresco, in fact, and then Barolo to identify these MGAs, so Menzioni Geografiche Aggiuntive, additional geographic mentions, right? That that identified sites, not necessarily single vineyards, I'd say, because some of them are vast, hundreds of hectares, but areas that have some sort of identity, arguably, um, at least historical identity that can be um, identified on a label, for instance, in Barolo and Barbaresco. Chianti Classico, in the wake of having announced the Gran Selezione, I think there was a lot of there was a lot of pushback, both from the press and various producers, that there had not, as part of that, also been uh, more emphasis on specific subregions. And so, an effort had been underway anyway to 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 sort of um, create more granularity because Picante Classico is a is a substantial size region. And there had always been um, the commune boundaries that I think people used as a loose substitute for any kind of um, subzones. But really, there, for example, places like Panzano wanted to be identified as unique from Greve, the, the, the part of the, the commune that it was part of. So in, in Chianti Classico, um, you had the UGAs that were mapped out, um, but the, they're really substantially larger i'd say than any of the the individual sites uh, named in 
the longest. So I have in front of me the the book that Alessandro Masnaghetti put together. I have to say I owe him an an immense um, an immense debt of gratitude um, for for these resources. He actually he also um, drove with me around around Chianti Classico to kind of illustrate why the the UGAs were drawn up the way that they were, but also the immense amount of diversity that remains within each one. That was a that was a an interesting process. I mean, so sorry, just to the the letters, the UGA. Um, it's because it's different in Chianti Classico. It's uh, Unità Geografiche Aggiuntive, um, which I think also is helpful in in identifying the fact that these are quite a lot bigger than the ones that you have in Piemonte. Um, for example, something like Gaiole. This is this is gonna <laughs> this is going to be a problem for a long time. The the emphasis in Chianti Classico. Lamole, but then Gaiole, Vagliagli. A lot of the pronunciation of these places is a little bit tricky, but that's it's going to, to be part of part of the messaging <laughs> that the, that the dialect, consorzi it, has ahead of it. Uh, Tuscan dialect. Well, so Tuscan dialect is in fact the Italian that everybody speaks, as we know, right? Kind of in the wake of the of the Renaissance. But but yes, the, the this is the eternal challenge with with Italian as a language is there is no there is no standardization on where the emphasis falls in the word it's interesting it's going to be something to work on for many years just before we move on to uh, the others um, chianti classico must have a, mm-hmm. a a legitimate claim to being the most improved wine region in the world isn't it mm-hmm. certainly in fine wine terms mm-hmm. yeah i i would say definitely and the and the mjs i think the gran selezione and the UGAs um, have been a big part of, I guess, shining a light on the work that's been done and there, thereby encouraging people to do better as well. I, I think it's, I think it's been, been pretty remarkable, actually, what's been achieved because, as, as I've, I've said a number of times, it, it had been considered this area for, for wonderful everyday wines or wonderful premium wines even, but not a region that was producing collectible wines. Um, I, th- I think definitely also the Sangiovese um, IGT Super Tuscans undoubtedly ha- played a role in that. Things like Pergole Torte, Fontaloro, um, Ceparello, Flaccianello. No question that this recognition that Sangiovese in the style that is produced in Chianti Classico, the light and elegant style, can be a world-class fine wine, was was inspiring to producers in the region to, to up their game. Interesting. Uh, what about Piedmont then? You hinted at, uh, at this just now, Barolo Barbaresco. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so the the move towards crew wines, MGA-labeled wines, um, I think is, I don't want to say picking up steam because I think it's already kind of happened. Um, I, I remember I remember being in the region with, with some friends in the kind of mid 2010s, so let's say I think it was two, 2014, and just witnessing that real, the the sort of let's say the last holdouts, but certainly some of the people who'd still been making wines under what they call nome di fantasia, right? The proprietary names that don't necessarily reserve to uh, refer to a specific place. The wines that had been made with these names were were gradually shifting towards being single site wines. I think because single sites have been, sadly, I'm always hesitant to pin it to a particular region, but I think because of Burgundy, 
there is this idea in the wine world as a whole that a single site is necessarily better than a um, than a blended wine, which is not really aligned with the, the history of the way Barolo has been made. And um, look, I think it's I think a focus on site has been positive for the region or both the two of them, Barolo and Barbaresco, because it emphasizes how expressive Nebbiolo is, how different it is, depending on where it's grown. Um, and I think has also encouraged people to, to step back a little bit on the winemaking and let, let, the, let the site speak, as it were. Um, so that, that's certainly been a positive trend. But in the meantime, I, or, or sort of at, at the same time, the, the blended Barolo of the past I think should not be forgotten entirely. There are still extraordinary wines being made um, that bring together different sites um, that are in no way inferior to single site wines. Nebbiolo is, you know, the, the most uh, extraordinary grape variety. Um, it's, uh, mm. you know, uh, mercurial, capricious, uh, fickle, uh, you know, c- call it what mm. you will. Um, it's uh, <laughs> It must be one of the harder grape varieties to assess, I would have thought. Well, it's interesting. Um, Ten years ago, um, or more than that now, when I was first thrown into this Italian wine world, I'd say that the nature of the young wines especially made assessment virtually impossible because of the, the level of structure that you would have in young wines relative to the aromatics, right? So you would have these wines that had sort of tongue abrading tannins. Like literally, I remember kind of having blood in my mouth after after a day of tasting tasting wines, just from the fierceness of the tannins, also amplified by acidity, and then aromatically sometimes very very little coming out. And whether it's to do with climate or to do with winemaking, and I'd say, I mean, obviously both styles have changed dramatically, and there are wines now that tasting them. The latest release, right? The 2020 Barbaresco, very, very pleasurable um, at this early stage in their lives. Beautiful fruit, fresh acidity, um, but tannins really, really fine, really soft, really silky. Age worthiness is a is a is a question. I mean, no doubt <laughs> when you have a, a shift this dramatic in a region uh, where where you've gone from having these extremely robust tannins. Um, that would only unlock flavors over time to wines that have this immediacy. There's no way of predicting how they're going to mature. I am reassured by the fact that they they still have elevated levels of acidity um, that I think will be will be very helpful in preserving them. But my goodness, they're enjoyable to drink now. There's just um, also I think a an embrace of prettiness in in the wines. There's there, I think, was there was more of an idea that Barolo should be "quote unquote" masculine um, in the past, right? This sort of these aromas that we as- associate with traditional masculinity, right? Tobacco and leather and all, of the, all these sort of dark aromas versus the sort of floral, delicate queen queen of the Lange style that people people talked about all the time for Barbaresco. But I'd say both regions have really now embraced. The fruit, the 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 floral aromatics, as well as some of the herbal aromatics um, that Nebbiolo that Nebbiolo provides, and 
I mean, the savoriness is not gone. There is still definitely that kind of amaro darkness on the other end, but it's I'd say a little bit more evenly distributed now between between those two than maybe it was in the past. Although there's always been, they've always been quite blurred boundaries between the two. Yeah, the challenge now is uh, with the uh, early drinking opportunities presented by a more approachable, accessible Nebbiolo. The, the challenge is actually mm. hanging on to it, I suspect. And uh, mm. Yeah, just because it is so pleasant to drink. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Uh, we should then mention Amarone. Yes, absolutely. So the, the decision in Valpolicella was to go exclusively with Amarone. And it was at this point, because of the, the way trends are going in the region, it was a bit of a question whether we whether we tried to also include um, Valpolicella Superiore or Valpolicella Classico Superiore, because that is a region where, uh, sorry, a, a, a category where so much creativity and so much quality focus has gone in over the past couple of years. And that felt like it would be quite timely. But I, I the decision that was ultimately taken was to focus exclusively on Amarone for this report, whether there will be a future report um, that separately treats uh, Superiore um, remains a question, and I, I for one, be quite excited to see to see one. But Amarone, it's yeah, and, and I think there's no question that Amarone, as a result of all the energy that's gone into the Superiore uh, category, ha- is in a bit of a a moment of self reflection, right? Where where producers are trying to decide what this style should be, right? It's this is a method of wine production that that predates the Romans. Right, using using dried grapes to add add concentration and richness, and in the face of a climate where we're getting those qualities anyway, what does that style become? And I think people have been going in in all sorts of different directions. There's there's definitely a trend towards embracing the kind of um, the sort of red fruited, uh, lighter, more aromatically delicate, more frankly, like a fresh grape wine style in Amarone, um, which, I mean, I, I I really had to have to kind of pause and assess with those wines because to my palate, they taste gorgeous, right? They're, they're beautiful, beautiful wines. But there's a question whether whether identity of the region separate, you know, it's, it's sort of USP gets lost in that process. Or other people would argue that the style where you know, the raisin notes and those kind of early evolved tertiary characters is that insisting on that as as the, the style of Amarone, is that the thing that's holding the region back? So it, it was it was one where um, writing that with report was one where I had to do a lot of a lot of reflection and, and sort of philosophical debate with myself on what what the goal should be for the region. And obviously, that's not for me to decide, but it's, it's how to treat that um, sensitively and not unfairly penalize wines that fit one one model or another um, if they are well made. Mm, I was going to say, is there a right answer? <laughs> yeah. To be honest, I'm still in the process of writing up those notes, so <laughs> I'm figuring that one out as I go. Um, mm. A thing that I um, that I discussed with my with my guide um, in the region from the consortio is really that I think. Something that might be helpful, I'd say in the interim, but probably knowing Italy, there will never be a style, right, that, that comes out of the region. There will, there will always be a number of different, different styles 
is that maybe we should think of it in sort of a, you know, sort of a dual, two, two different metrics. So is it is it tendentially sort of purple or brown, right? This is this is my sort of visual visual tendencies coming out. Is it per, kind of purple brown direction, right? Sort of that that um, berry fruit and chocolate direction, or is it red fruit and herbal direction, right? And then is it is it more oxidative or is it more not reductive, but fresh fruited, right? And and that that actually gets you a certain way to figuring out broad stylistic buckets. And then within those, you can assess whether somebody has, has achieved that goal six, successfully. So the one sort of place that I found a little bit challenging was when it's red fruited and quite oxidative. That feels like that feels like sort of a failure because you were it feels like you were going for the red fruited lighter style and expose it to too much oxygen that that's that's kind of um bluntly what 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 i what i found with some of some of those stars and i think in in the report those were probably the the ones that i that i rewarded the least but within the the kind of darker fruited realm the 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 kind of richer more oxidative styles that i think have for instance some influence from botrytis right that is a conscious stylistic decision right um there's I'd say in the wine world, a little bit of a little bit of a question mark around wines of style, right? We we are in a mo- are in an era where wines that speak of terroir, right, are are seen as inherently more valuable on some level than wines of style, where the winemaking has had a huge influence on the process. But you know, what's champagne if not that, right? There's a there's a an immense amount of human input in in that wine, and I, I don't think that's something that should be should be dismissed out of hand. Um, and so with Amarone, I think fundamentally accepting the fact that it is a wine where, where the, the human, the human um, hand plays an immense role and then figuring out um, the extent to which uh, that's successfully achieved and how much, how much expression is left behind from, from the underlying grape material um, is, is all part of the assessment process. Yeah. Well, it's going to be fascinating to read uh, your report on uh, you. all of these regions, but Amarone uh, particularly, given what you've uh, said. A final question, um, and uh, this is for those of us who uh, might not be able to afford all the wines we want from some of those regions that have um, mm-hmm. rightly been recognised, as we said earlier on, mm-hmm. in Italy. Um, where's next? Um, what, what's mm-hmm. the next great Italian fine wine region, do you think? Well, thank you for that segue, uh, David, because we're... we're um... We definitely are looking for next year um, at doing um, a number of wine regions that uh, we didn't have the opportunity to cover this year that that I think um, would be contenders for that. So the ones that are that are on my list certainly are uh, Bulgari, and I think Bulgari is a little bit of an interesting one in the sense that it had it certainly had a massive moment in in the in the sort of latter decades of last century, right? So so nobody would argue that that Bulgari is you know, new on the scene. And in fact, it's fine wines have probably been recognized longer than some of the ones we wrote about this year. But um, I think there's, there's certainly a lot of undiscovered Bulgari to, to be covered. And I, I'm, I'm hoping to tease out um, some of the estates there that maybe have not gotten the level of public recognition as the, you know, all the IO wines that we, that we all obviously know, um, which, which will be part of the report as well, I hope. And beyond that, we have um, certainly Etna is one that I think would be impossible to ignore. Mm. And I would also like to um, 
like to include um, Campania in some form. We're trying to figure out exactly whether that is just the red wines, because I think this year has been all about red wine. And I've, one of my, um, one of my pet subjects has been the elevation of Italian white wine. And I do feel a little bit guilty, honestly, about the fact that we haven't, we haven't played so much of a, or we haven't really been, been, made that a focus of the reports this year. Um, but I think Campania is an excellent place um, to get into that, both with Fiano um, and Greco. Um, so those are, those are all different areas that we're looking at. And in Etna, just to emphasize, it would definitely be about both red wine and white wine, which I think the latter is really having a moment um, the past couple of years. So. Oh, yes, without question. Well, um, I would uh, absolutely read reports on, uh, on those. I think you've identified uh, certainly t- two of my uh, favourite uh, Italian uh, wine regions. So I can't wait to read these uh, uh, reports um, I- I- in full. Um, and uh, it's been really interesting teasing them with you. Uh, so uh, that's all Thanks we've so done. There's, there's plenty Thanks. more to get to uh, your group into. So, um, Sarah, it's a great um, pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I know it's very early in the morning where you are right now, Pacific time. So thank you for getting up at the crack of dawn or even before it uh, to talk to us here on The Drinking Hour. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. Let's round off, as ever, with a selection of medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame. And our focus this week, for obvious reasons, is Italy and a couple of those classic regions to which we have been referring with Sarah at Piedmont first. A gold medal winner from a great name, G.D. Vara, Costa di Rosa, 2019. On the panel for this Barolo, uh, Matteo Montone, MS, uh, Rebecca Palmer, Vincenzo Arnese, uh, Niccolo Cerrihini, and the panels chaired by Master of Wine Mick O'Connell. And here's what they said. An extremely elegant and harmonious example, fragrant and fabulously complex. Delicious aromas of dark cherry fruit draw us in, leading us to a concentrated and layered palette defined by blackberry, orange, tomato and truffle. Remarkable balance throughout. Outstanding, they said, of that particular gold medal winner. Staying in Piedmont, a very strong silver medal winner, 94 points, so just one point shy of a gold for Lo Zoccolaio, 2018. At the panel's tasting note, intense aromas of roses, red berries and white pepper, balancing a palette of fresh red berries and tobacco with chalky tannins and a lingering finish. To Tuscany next, a Brunello di Montalcino, gold medal winning with 95 points. Seconda Stella a Destra, 2018, from La Torgata. Uh, the panel here featuring Italian experts Daphne Terremetz, Bruno Bessa, Megan Clark and Salvatore Castano, chaired by Alistair Cooper, MW, and here's what they said. This masterpiece is heady and intense. Blackberries and raspberries are first to entice, swiftly followed by leather, smoked meat and wet slate. 
layer upon layer. The palette manages to be fresh and umami with a finish you wish would never end. Staying in Tuscany, a gold medal winning sweet wine next. Fattoria La Viala, Reserva 2013. This is a Vinsanto del Chianti Occhio di Pernice, a blend of ripe Sangiovese and Malvasia Toscana grapes, dried on racks and then pressed whole. So really intense. Awarding it 95 points. The panel said this, primary, secondary and tertiary flavours combine with a plum here, alongside dried tomato, coffee, cherry, bruised apple and ripe apricot notes, drawing the drinker in, allowing them to experience the stunning structure, rounded raisin fatness and long, memorable finish. And here's another sweet gold from Tuscany, one that I remember because I was lucky enough to be on the judging panel alongside the brilliant master sommeliers Matteo Montoni and Issa Bal uh, for this one. Uh, Fattoria La Viala, Vinsanto 2018. 95 points for this. Here's what we said. Intoxicating elements of raisin and dried fruit, coffee, ice cream, ripe pear and toasted notes with none dominating the other. They all help to aid the complex Rancio style created here. Intense but elegant, waxy but crisp. A perfect composition. And I trust you enjoyed our perfect composition today. Uh, My thanks to Sarah. Do look out for those insightful reports across the month of September at clubanalogique.com. That's also where you'll find my monthly column, the most recent of which was on the subject of the preservation of Santorini Asiatico, which is the focus of our next edition of the Drinking Hour podcast. So, Do join us next time. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. 